Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know this because he was teaching his disciples. He told them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. But three days after he is killed, he will rise. But they did not understand the statement and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he will be the last of all and the servant of all. Then he took a little child and placed him in their midst. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not just me, but also him who sent me. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is rightfully first but became last for us, if you were just reading this section of Scripture at home on your own, what would your takeaway be? What would you think that Jesus is telling you here? I think we typically like short summaries of, of Scripture, right? Things that are easy to remember, something that could go on a bumper sticker or a hashtag. And, and so I think most people would probably take away from this lesson the words that Jesus said about whoever wants to be first must be the last of all and the servant of all. And if you take that phrase out of context, if you just read it in isolation, it comes off as completely law, right? That if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be first in God's eyes, then you've got to be humble, you've got to be last, and you've got to be the servant of all. Law. Have you ever met anyone who really took that phrase to heart, that you must be last and the servant? They're really annoying people to be around. You know, they, they will refuse to be served. They will never go first in anything. You urge them, okay, get in line for, for the potluck, and they never will do that. They, they're frustrating to be around. You don't want to run into them at a four-way stop either because then no one, no one will move. Uh, it's, it can be frustrating to be around people. What if we all were like that? You know, uh, first of all, we probably wouldn't have anyone here in church because if you had to be the last one into church, you wouldn't come in, and not everyone can be the one to come in while the last stanza of the first hymn is finishing up. No one would eat at our potlucks or our soup suppers because everyone would want to be in the kitchen insisting on serving instead of being served. It just doesn't work. And and so we're not going to take that verse out of context and not read that primarily as law, but rather read it in context And read these verses not primarily as Jesus telling us what we must do, how humble we we must be, but rather as a demonstration of how he has humbled himself for us. For the second time in Mark's Gospel, we just heard the first one last week, Jesus predicts what's going to happen to him in the next coming weeks and months. And he's very clear. He speaks in crystal clear terms. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. But three days after he is killed, he will rise. I know it's so easy for us to let those words go in one ear and out the other. We confess them in the creeds every single week. Jesus suffered, died, was buried, and rose again. 
But sometimes it doesn't even catch in our minds, but it should. This is the Gospel. This is Jesus telling us what He came to do, that He had to suffer and die for our sins and then rise to life for our justification. These are the most important things in the world, not only now, but for all eternity. So don't pass over them too quickly. But you might ask then, if these are so important things and Jesus is speaking so clearly to His disciples here, why don't they understand and why are they afraid to ask Him about it? I think there are probably two reasons. Obviously, they were planning on going to Jerusalem with Jesus and finding glory and honor for themselves. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. They probably were arguing over something like, well, who's going to be the chief of staff in Jesus' administration when he takes over in Jerusalem? If they admitted that Jesus was going to Jerusalem not to reign on a throne but to die on a cross, their hopes of glory, their hopes of grandeur would be dashed and I don't think they were ready for that quite yet. The second thing is, wait a minute, if Jesus is going to suffer, if he's going to be killed, what are they going to do with us? Clearly, I think they're afraid to admit the truth here. In other words, you don't ask the questions you don't want the answer to, right? There may be some occasions where you walk into your doctor's office and you really don't want to know what the test results say. If you're a parent of a teenager and they stumble in at 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe, maybe you don't want the answer to the question of what they were out doing so late at night. Uh, husbands, men, we're kind of afraid of asking our wives if there's any housework to do, right? We, sometimes there are questions we don't want the answer to, and it seems like that's where the disciples were at this point. They were really unteachable, weren't they? Ever dealt with someone who's just unteached, stubbornly unteachable, not willing to learn? Maybe it's a child um, who doesn't want to learn their fractions or doesn't want to learn their words for spelling class. Or maybe it's an elderly friend or, or relative. You're trying to teach them how to use a new piece of technology and they just say, I don't, want, I don't want to learn that. And you just want to throw up your hands and say, forget it then. Stay in your ignorance. Just, just be dumb. I won't teach you. But Jesus doesn't do that here. He continues to teach his disciples. He's patient with them even when they are unteachable. And now the takeaway from that is not that we should be more patient with those who are unteachable in our lives, but rather to understand how patient Jesus is in teaching us. Do you know how dull we often are? How unteachable we often are? Our whole lives we've known the Ten Commandments, God's will for our life. And yet, Day after day after day, we set aside the Lord's will. We say, no, I'd rather go my own way. But Jesus doesn't stop teaching us those commandments. We have these outrageous ideas of what life in this world should be like. Even though the Lord in his word told Eve, Eve, marriage is going to be difficult. It's going to be a constant battle between husband and wife. And he told Adam, It's not going to be easy to scrape out a living in this world. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be thorns and thistles and troubles, and only by the sweat of your brow are you going to live. And yet, for some reason, we have this fanciful imagination idea that that we should have perfect marriages and perfect trouble-free jobs. And it's just not true. But Jesus continues to teach us those things anyway. Jesus says very clearly, the wages of sin is death. 
And then a virus pops up out of nowhere and people start dying and we're, we're surprised by that. Why are we surprised when Jesus told us that's exactly what's going to happen because you're sinners? We're so unteachable. We're so slow of learning and yet here we see Jesus' humility that he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, fine, remain in your ignorance, go to hell. He keeps teaching us day after day, week after week. There's his humility in his teaching. We also see his humility and his patience. So the disciples and Jesus were on their way. They were coming down from Caesarea Philippi, which is near the, Medi- the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, about 40 miles from Capernaum. And they didn't have cars then, so they're traveling. It probably took them three, four days to make that journey. And the whole way, what is Jesus hearing behind him? His disciples are fighting. About what? Of all things, which of them is the greatest? He had just told them, listen, we're on the way now. We are on the way to Jerusalem where I am going to be killed by my enemies. And the whole time, they're arguing. I don't know what kind of patience level you have when there's arguing going on in the back seat on a road trip. I don't have a whole lot. Ten minutes of it, and I'm ready to throw up my hands and say, do I need to stop this car? Do I need to turn it around? But Jesus wasn't like that. He's... Patient. And again, the lesson for us is not that we should be more patient with our children when they're arguing in the back seat of a car on a road trip, but that Jesus is very patient with us, even when we are bickering. You might say, what? We don't argue here at Risen Savior. We all get along. Let's not be naive about that. I do things that rub you the wrong way. You do things that rub me the wrong way. Someone on this side of the church probably has a grudge against someone on this side of the church. And sometimes those arguments come up. Sometimes they come out in the hallway or in a meeting. Or shamefully, they come out in complaining in the car to our spouse on the way home. We argue. We bicker. And Jesus would have every right to throw up his hands and say, do I need to stop this church? Do I need to turn around? Do I need to just leave you to your bickering ways? After all, look at this group of people that I shed my blood for and you can't stop arguing. You don't deserve for my presence to be among you anymore. But he doesn't do that. In his humility, he is patient with us. He doesn't think he's too good to be the head of this church. He understands that he's a great physician who came to heal sick people, not, not healthy people. He understands that he's a shepherd. And if you're a shepherd, you've got to understand that your sheep are going to stink. They're going to go wandering off from time to time. Jesus gets it. He understands that the, the church is a place where sinners, not, not holy, perfect people gather. This is a hospital And Jesus understands that it's going to be ugly. And he just doesn't stop coming to us with his word, with his grace, and with his forgiveness. Now, you might say, but didn't Jesus confront them when they got to the house? I guess, let's look carefully at that question. What does he ask them? He asks them, what were you talking about on the way here? Now, is is that confrontational? It makes me think more of what God said in the Garden of Eden, right? After the fall into sin, the Lord said, where are you? It's not confrontational, but what is it? When you're asked those types of questions of your child, what, what have you done? What are you providing? 
You're providing an opportunity for them to confess their sins, right? To get their guilt off of their chest. And I think Jesus is giving them an opportunity to, to think about two lessons that they should have already known. And the first is that the Lord doesn't count greatness the same way we do. He doesn't look at greatness the same way the world looks at greatness. And that comes out so clearly if you just know your Old Testament, right? Cain, Cain was born first, but who is the one in the Hall of Fame of Faith? His, his younger brother, Abel. Uh, Esau was the oldest, but Jacob was the one who actually got the blessing. Jacob was the one through whom the Savior would eventually come. Joseph, he was a, a slave. He was sold into slavery, and yet he was eventually raised, the Lord raised him up to be a ruler in Egypt, over all of Egypt. I think of David. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. So, so young and so humble in, in appearance that Jesse didn't even think he, he should be brought before Samuel as someone who could possibly be king. And yet David becomes the king of Israel. The Lord has this upside-down notion of greatness from what the world does and what we often do. He, he sees greatness not in visible, wonderful, magnificent things, but rather in, in small, humble things. And, and the Lord wanted his disciples to see greatness that way. But it's, there's a second thing that this question teaches us. Luke's account tells us that Jesus knew exactly what they were arguing about because he knew what was on their hearts. And so, here's another lesson. It's maybe a nuanced lesson, but it's a lesson. He's teaching his disciples, listen, I'm not just some rabbi. I'm not just some traveling teacher. I am the Son of God in human flesh and blood. I know everything about you. I know the very thoughts of your heart. And he was trying to get them to understand, look, is the Son of God on earth. And where is He going? What's He going to do? He's going to Jerusalem to give up His life for us. Who are we to be behind Him on His way to the cross arguing about who is the greatest? He wanted them to understand none of them were. None of them could, could pay for their own sins. None of them could pay for their sins of their fellow disciples. They were following the greatest. They were following the one who would humble himself to give up his life for them. Jesus has one last demonstration of humility up his sleeve. Up to this point, Jesus has generally been teaching his disciples using the lecture format. He's just speaking to them and they're listening. That's a fairly sophisticated method of instruction. You usually use that with uh, college age and above. You use that with adults. It doesn't really work too well with children, right? What do grade school teachers do with children who have trouble grasping abstract concepts? Well, they use object lessons. Now, can you imagine any of the, and I don't know any of them personally, but a, a, a PhD-level professor at the UW um, sitting down on the steps or, or taking a child into his arms? That's, that's not what high-level teachers do. And yet here is Jesus. He's the wisdom of God come down from heaven. He humbles himself to use an object lesson to get across a point to his disciples that they just weren't understanding through his lectures. So what he does is he, he calls a child, a little child, into the center of the room. It's probably one of the disciples' own children. And then he takes that child in his arms. Now that doesn't seem strange for us. In 21st century America, um, 
This is a children's world, and the rest of us just live in it. We exist to serve them, to drive them, to feed them. But in Jesus' day, it was just the opposite. Children were on the same level as slaves. They were not only not to be heard, they were never to be seen. The only job a child had was to grow up. To grow up and get a job and get out of the house. To, for a girl to grow up and get married and get out of the house. Children were, were very low on the societal totem pole. So Jesus taking a child in his arms would have been unbelievable. And, and he injects all of this meaning into it. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. What is Jesus teaching his disciples there? He's teaching them that it's not these big, magnificent works of faith that are the things that God views as great in his eyes. You see, the disciples, remember Peter last week. What did, what did Peter think was a great work in the eyes of God? Telling Jesus, no, 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 you can't go to the cross. I love you too much. You shouldn't suffer and die. There's another time in, in Luke's Gospel where the disciples thought, you know what? These towns need Jesus, these towns that have rejected you. How about we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? That'll teach them a lesson. They thought that casting out demons was, and doing miracles were great works in the eyes of God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've got it all backwards. Just taking a little child in your arms, that's what God views as great. And so the takeaway for us is that What God views as great in our lives, as great deeds of service to him and to others, are are just the normal, everyday things that you're already doing in your vocation. You mothers, I'm amazed how you can be on call 24-7 as the household CEO and doctor and accountant and counselor and surgeon and, and everything else that you do. That. Those simple ways. I know they're not appreciated by the world. You're you're never going to make the headlines with what you do on a daily basis, but those things are great in the eyes of God. Fathers, when you don't just take the time to teach your child how to throw a baseball but or and ride a bike, but to teach them a catechism, to read the Bible to them, to show them how to pray. Those are the great things that those are things that are great in the eyes of God. Your parents who have sacrificed to give your children a full-time Christian education, who maybe have sacrificed having a nicer, newer car, or you didn't get to go on that breathtaking vacation, or you haven't been able to upgrade or renovate your house. That's greatness in the eyes of God. Your grandparents who who set an example that a a life well-lived is not about your accomplishments. It's not about how many accolades and awards you have on your wall. It's not about opening a photo album and showing your grandchildren, look, I met this famous person, I have this person. A life well-lived is one of humble service to others. That's greatness in the eyes of God. I've noticed greatness week after week here at Risen Savior. As, As many of you who have a little more experience than the rest of us, kind of just have to shuffle in here because you ache. You have your cane and your walker, and yet you come. What a powerful testimony, what a powerful example that is to the rest of us. You could have every excuse to not come, and yet you do. That's greatness in the eyes of God. These small, everyday things that go unnoticed by the world, that's where the Lord finds greatness. He wants us to turn our ideas of what is great 
upside down. He wants us to understand that Jesus sees humility, a greatness in being humble. Why would that be? Why would, why would Jesus see greatness in such small acts as, if, as in even taking a child into your arms? Well, because it goes hand in hand with the, the rest of Christianity. You realize that to the rest of the world, Christianity is all very childish, right? We must accept it in childlike faith. And as Jesus said here, as you receive a child, you're receiving me. He's saying, you must receive me as a child. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive Jesus as a child? It means that he's not coming in glorious power. It means that he comes in humility. Yes, we know in the last day Jesus will return in glory and power, but right now that's not who we receive. That's why we don't have, as the emblem of Christianity, Jesus storming into this world on the clouds with an army behind him. We have the cross. Because that's the Savior we cling to in faith right now. A humble Savior. A man of sorrows. A crucified, bloody, dead Savior. And risen. That's who we cling to in faith. And he still comes to us in in what the world deems as childish ways, doesn't he? He sends a a sinful man and and he says that through his lips your sins are forgiven in heaven. He he adopts sinners into his family through a handful of tap water and baptism. He, He comes to us with his body and blood in with and under the bread and the wine. Childish. It's all childish. And that's the point. Childlike faith that grasps onto that child born in Bethlehem who grew up to die on a cross to be our Savior, that's the essence of the Christian faith. That's the humility Jesus demonstrated and that's the humility that we reflect in our lives of service to one another. If your takeaway today is that bumper sticker, that hashtag, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. That's okay. Just understand it the right way. Understand that it's not primarily law. That it's not really about, first of all, what you must do. It's rather about what Jesus did. He's the one who was the first and is the first now because he became the last. He became the servant of all when he gave up his life on the cross. He still comes to us in humble ways through these means of grace and that's how he does the wonderful work of forgiving our sins and opening the doors of heaven to us. When you understand the greatness in Jesus' humility, then you can see, you can understand how he sees the greatness in your humility. That the true greatness that God sees in your life is you being the mother and the father and the husband and the wife and the grandmother and the grandfather that God has called you to be. That's true greatness in the eyes of God. Amen.